Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. I am back this week with Andy Flattery of the Simple Wealth Podcast and the Catholic Mastermind Podcast, and he also does the Moonlight Graham Show. Um, Andy is a husband and a father and a reformed financial advisor, and uh, just an all-around great guy, and we're here today to talk about ways to cope with inflation. Hey, Andy. Tim, hey, it's great to be back. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, I, I think most people think inflation is just a gigantic burden, and I think people are maybe trying to figure out how to cope with it, and I thought, who better to talk to than Andy Flattery? Maybe you'll have some very, very good ideas. Um, maybe I'll have a few ideas here and there. Um, maybe you'll help me refine my ideas. So what I was kind of hoping to do is maybe have us talk about maybe a general approach that people could take um, and then maybe get into some specifics like how to save on things like food, fuel, transportation, sure. taxes, that kind of thing. Then maybe get into investments a little bit. Like are there some good investments out there that would be helpful? Um, including hard assets, and um, and then just maybe a little bit more life advice or macro strategies. That, that's kind of my thought on things. Um, is is that a good approach? Do you think? Yeah, uh, and maybe you've talked about this on your podcast already. But would it be worthwhile to just set the table on why it's possible that um, inflation could be here for a while, like higher than usual inflation? Absolutely. Before we dive into it, um, if we're if we're trying to talk to our audience about maybe why they should even care about what we have to say, like maybe this is going to be a problem for um, you know a period of time, would it be worthwhile to get into that first? Oh, a hundred percent. I absolutely. what I'm saying is, Tim, it might not be transitory. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be transitory. I really don't. Um, and and maybe people have different reasons or explanations for why that is. For me, and, and maybe I'm just absolutely wrong, and I'm going to defer to your expertise here. I, I truly am. I, I just have heard that 40% of all of the dollars in existence were printed in the last two years. And I think it's just a simple supply and demand situation that if you, for example, if a, if a country were to double its money supply, they don't get twice as rich. They just have twice as much paper chasing the same amount of goods. So, you know, at that point, a dollar is going to spend like 50 cents used to spend. Um, that's my understanding. But I'd, I'd love to know what you think. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree 100 um, percent. So, you know, Milton Friedman has that line, which people have heard where it's all inflation, at least at its um, at its core is a is primarily a monetary phenomenon. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the classical definition of inflation is literally just uh, increasing the money supply, like literally just creating, putting more money out into the system. So like traditionally, uh, that, that is literally what economists said inflation was. So like what you just said, if you're increasing the money supply at like 40%, that's the inflation rate. Now, Today, when, when we say infl inflation just casually or when you hear about inflation in the news, they're not talking about the money supply per se. They're just talking about like a general increase in prices or like CPI, for example. Um, but I think it's, uh, it's, it's really important, Tim, that you started with that because I think um, 
it's hard to pin down what, you know, what, what the inflation rate is. Um, you, Tim, you have a different inflation rate than I have. And there's a lot of problems with CPI. Like the CPI is not some sort of, um, number that was handed down to us by God. And so I think the one thing we can look to is we can say, like, we know for a fact that the M2 money supply, which is basically the supply of dollars that are in the system, has increased significantly in in both 2020 and 2021. And so um, that's a good place to start. And what I would say, so then you might say, well, well, what if, um, what if uh, Jerome Powell, who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, he pulls a Paul Volcker and, and Volcker was the chairman of the Federal Reserve under Reagan and sort of famously um, he uh, he sort of found religion and he cranked up interest rates and essentially decreased the money supply in the early 1980s. And it was very controversial at the time, but it sort of led to this 80s boom. And so the question is, well, what if Jerome Powell is just doing that right now and inflation is going to go away and by the time Tim releases this podcast, it's sort of a non-issue. Huh. I mean, I think that's that's on the table. It's worth considering the fact that that could, could be possible. Um, you know, I, I sort of hope that's what's going to happen. My concern or my suspicion is that um, I sort of think it's the kind of thing that's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, we've, uh, we've kind of got hooked on this sort of easy money in the U in the U S today where, you know, every time there's a crisis, you sort of need the money spigot to open up again to, you know, send out stimulus checks or, you know, in the case of what could be happening down the road, like pay for things like social security or Medicare, which are very hard to pay or, or might be very hard to pay through with taxes down, down the road. So I, so I, th I think just by virtue of the fact that we have so much more debt today in the system than what we did in 1980, uh, the, the way to essentially um, handle that is you, you can try to pay it off or you can essentially just inflate the debt away. And, and in my view, like I sort of, I think that's probably what's going to happen. Um, and, and I'm hope I'm not using too much jargon here, but, but in short, if, if the U S if they're having a hard time paying off the debt, servicing the national debt, well, they could just print more money. <laughs> they could just print more money to, to continue servicing that, that debt. And that's a way to sort of keep the ball rolling, but I, that, but that's going to cause inflation to continue to be a problem. Um, and so I think that's the the first issue with regards to the monetary policies. There's other things that are inflationary that are happening right now too, like the boomers are retiring. Um, sort of, uh, you know, international trade has has lost its luster. You've heard you've seen a lot of pushback against globalism. Um, really, uh, both with Republicans and Democrats. And so we could get into that. But I think just in general, what you said, Tim, is, is spot on. Um, the, you know, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, there's been a significant amount of money printing that's happened in the last few years. And I, I think that's probably going to continue. I don't think they've found religion yet. <laughs> well, gosh, of all the proposed solutions, the one that I'm most familiar with is the Paul Volcker move from the 1980s. And essentially what he did was, okay, so kind of going backward just a little bit. The 70s were this pretty crappy decade in terms of the economy. We had stagflation, which was relatively high interest rates. 
rampant money printing uh, and just a rotten economy, high unemployment, just all the things that were not supposed to happen at the same time were happening at the same time. And economists were like, yeah, but this is not even supposed to be possible. So then Volcker comes along in the 1980s, and then eventually we wind up with crushing interest rates. We wind up with about 16% for people buying houses. And uh, gosh, I mean, if you talk to people who are, say, about 60, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember I got my first house for 12%, and that was a bargain. You know, they're excited about that because they nailed down 12% when all their friends had been paying like 16%. Um, what Volcker did was he basically crushed inflation by making it incredibly hard for people to borrow money. But on the mm-hmm. flip side of all this, um, unemployment shot way up at first. 1982, I believe, was a totally punishing year, absolutely punishing. Um, but it worked. It was tough medicine. I mean, you talk about getting religion. They got religion. They took the tough medicine. Then we had this boom that went from roughly 1983 all the way up to 2008. I mean, it was that's the one I'm most familiar with. Now, if there's another way out of this inflation trap, other than raising interest rates, trying to reduce the money supply, I, I honestly don't know what it is. Well, the other, the other example that people always talk about, so obviously the 1970s is closest to home. Um, but the 1940s is the other one that people talk about as well, too. That was a high inflationary period. But unlike stagflation, um, the, the difference with the 1940s is that after World War II, you know, they, they printed all this money to go fight a world war. And then after World War II, um, that, you know, that caused a lot of inflation. And, and some of the, the sort of money printing um, continued for various, you know, public projects. But the difference was now then you had all these people coming home and you had this massive amount of growth that happened in the economy. And so the inflation was somewhat muted because, yes, there's a lot of inflation, but there's a sort of booming economy that goes with it. Hmm. And so um, that was a little bit of a different scenario. So I think maybe some people were hoping that that would have been the case after COVID here, where it would have been more like the 1940s, where, yes, there was going to be a lot of inflation. Um but, 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 but there's going to be a booming economy. It's going to be the, you know, the post-war economy where everyone's going, to, everyone's going to go back to work. And so maybe we can still hold out hope that that will be the case. And I think a lot of people think that they're going to hopefully grow their way out of this. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm not sure that's going to be the case. I'm, I worry it's going to be more like a stagflationary environment like you do. Yeah, I, I do. I do. And, and I'm, I guess I'm somewhat familiar with the situation in the forties. Now they, they mm-hmm. tried to manage a lot of the inflation with really strict wage and price controls during the war. I I mean, they would go to employers and they would say, you'd better not give anybody a raise. And then furthermore, nobody had better raise any prices. And, you know, to me, that's a good point. Yeah. To me, this is living in like a total fantasy land because basically what the government's saying is we want to print free money for ourselves. We don't want anybody else to get a raise. We don't want anybody else to raise prices. So it's kind of selective. It's kind of like, hey, we get all the free money. We can spend it as we as we please. Meanwhile, the rest of the economy is somehow going to stay the same way that it was mm-hmm. before we started printing all this money. I, I just don't know how that works. To me, this is like if you're on an exercise program and you have cheat day. You know, actually, it's more like cheat six days and one day where you're 
doing the right thing and six days where you're cheating. I, I just, I, I don't know how that works. Maybe in the 40s, maybe we somehow did grow out of it after the war was over. Um, I, I guess we did have a good economy in the 40s and then throughout most of the 50s and actually most of the 60s. I think things really start to go downhill roughly in about 68 because that was Vietnam War ramping up and how are we mm. going to fight the war? Well, let's print money like there's no tomorrow. And that, I think, is kind of what led to the whole 70s stagflation thing. And, and what am I missing about the 40s scenario? Oh, I think I think you nailed it. I think it's important that you pointed out that um, that piece about price controls, too, because, um, you know, there can be you can learn the wrong lesson. You know, if the lesson is, well, let's just go to a war and cause a bunch of growth to happen because now we're like building tanks and stuff like that. And that's good for the economy. Um, that might be the wrong lesson, you know, whereas because like if you just look at GDP numbers like that probably looks pretty good, right? Like if you go build a tank, well, that's, that's production. You're, you're, um, you know, you're producing something that like can like be, um, uh, equated in, in GDP. But, you know, in the case of like price controls, well, if you just get rid of price controls and then now it's uh, so, you know, semi-free market again, well, of course you're going to see growth because people are going to raise their prices, which is going to lead to, you know, a higher, higher GDP. And so I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, this, the same problem happened in, in the Great Depression, too, where there was price controls, there was wage controls. And um, once those went away after the Great Depression, a lot of people made the point that, like, well, World War II got us out of the Depression because now, you know, going to a war caused all this growth. Well, some of it was just an accounting, um, uh, you know, a, a, a bit of an accounting peculiarity where the fact that some of these controls went away just made the numbers look a lot better and for obvious reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I look, I just I think no matter what situation you're in, when the government prints money in a very, very rampant way, it's really just hidden taxation because why I guess my feeling is it's like, let's say that there's a trillion dollars in the economy of some country and they double that and they make that two trillion dollars. What they've essentially done is they've created a 50 percent tax rate because they just basically took half of the wealth of the country for themselves. Grandma, who's got $100,000 in the bank, well, that's going to spend like $50,000 at that point. Mm. But the thing is, a lot of people really don't understand that inflation is just this massive hidden tax. They just think like, hey, it's like rain or it's like thunderstorms. Like this is some weird natural phenomena. It's just kind of happening. Like where did this come from? This is a big mystery. Um, I don't think it's a big mystery. I, it shouldn't be. It, government prints the money. They take half the wealth. Um, grandma gets ripped off. Grandpa gets ripped off. Everybody gets ripped off. Um, I, I think maybe the most terrible thing I can say is maybe some of the people printing all the money don't really realize just what a bad idea this is. At least that's kind of mm-hmm. how I'm seeing things. And, you know, perhaps I'm missing something. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you, 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 I mean, there's probably ways you could talk yourself into it, right? Like if, if we don't print this money, it's not going to be possible to, um, you know, people are going to be super pissed because we're making them stay at home and we're not, we're not allowing them to go to work. 
so we better send this we better send them some checks so like to sort of mollify the masses you know yeah and so, I'm, so you can think about what these these trade-offs must be what i'm saying what what i'm saying is um stimulus checks were not paid through through taxes they were mostly paid through through debt financing which is essentially the way money is created in like a, a debt-based fiat system and yes. so um yeah i agree with you i think i think it is sort of thought of as like a um you know, like the weather or something like that, where just inflation happens and we don't know where it comes from, but you know, we do know where it comes from. And, uh, it always happens when, when money is printed. And so I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So is there anything else that you would like to add on kind of like the big picture the macro picture? I don't think so. I mean, I think we're Tim, we're recording this at a good time where, you know, even my wife, is now Geneva is now talking about inflation. So if you and I were having this conversation a year or a year and a half ago, when really the money printing was really going down and only now we're feeling the, the, the effects of it, uh, we probably would have sounded a little crazy, but now I feel like this has sort of gone mainstream where it's in the price of diapers. And so the moms know about it. And so I think, I think that we're, we're timing this perfectly. That's right. That's right. Why well, I, I think, uh, okay. I think we should give people practical suggestions as best as we can um, and just sort of assume that this inflation is going to keep going for who knows. It could be the next two years. It could be the next five years. Um, it could be a very, very long time if people in the government keep printing money. Yeah, I agree. I think um, it's hard to predict what you know, what we're looking at here in terms of a period of time. But, um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the 1940s or the 1970s, I mean, we were talking about five to 10 year periods of prolonged inflation and even, uh, you know, the CPI numbers. And of course, caveat, I know it's not, I know it's probably more than CPI inflation, but um, even if that number were to come down, like even if 8% CPI becomes 4% CPI. Well, that numbers, those numbers are still compounding on top of each other. That's so it's right. still, it's still a real problem. Um, there's going to be uh, prices that just get anchored and, and we're never going to see, um, you know, you're never going to see diapers at a certain price again that we might've seen in a couple of years ago, because even if the, the inflation rate will come down, we're not going to have disinflation where, Maybe for a period of time, you got some deflation and that sort of brings prices back to some sort of equilibrium. Uh, even if, no, I, I don't think that's going to happen. What I think is going to happen is even if, you know, worst case scenario, inflation just keeps going up. But even if it goes down, the, a 4% inflation rate is just going to compound on top of 8% or 10% inflation. And that's that's really bad, too. Sure. It's, it's, it's brutal. And gosh, whenever they say CPI, consumer price index, oh, the inflation rate was about 8%. I am thinking, mm -hmm. hey, in what world are you guys living? I remember when gas was, you know, $1.89 a gallon. And as of this recording, it's about four fifty, four sixty. Yeah. So I mean, that's roughly, you know, that's roughly triple. That's 300% inflation, as far as I'm concerned. Um, maybe I did my math a little bit wrong there. Um, I buy hamburger. The type that I buy used to be seven seventy five a pound, and right now it's about eleven thirty five. So wow. that's close to a forty five percent increase. Uh, these are basic things for me. This is this is food and fuel. These are things people need. 
I just whenever they say, hey, the CPI gives us an inflation rate of 8%, you know, that's calculated on what economists call a basket of goods. Like, okay, so somebody goes to the grocery store, they pick up a basket of groceries, and uh, it was $100, but now their groceries are costing $108. So then they say, oh, 8% inflation. But they don't bother to mention that they frequently swap items out. Like, oh, people used to be getting beef. Mm, Okay, but now we're going to be getting tuna and chicken instead. So, you know, we swap some items out. At least this is what my economics textbook says that I teach from. Um, That's kind of like this whole, I I just don't believe this 8% number. I just don't. That's well. That sounds like you have a good economics textbook too, because I thought uh, I thought we were supposed to be indoctrinated into believe that the CPI was sacrosanct. But um, but yeah, I mean, I've heard it described as uh, one of the problems is it's we have a lot of inflation in needs, but maybe less inflation in wants. So if the thing that you need is a single family home in Kansas City, well, guess what? Those have gone up more than 8% a year of, of late, okay? Um, if the thing that you really need is um, heart surgery, that's been going up at, at more than 8% a year. If you want a high-quality liberal arts education, um, you're going to pay for that. And um, I think – and these are the things that people like really desire, right? If you're looking for, um, I don't know, like a bag of potato chips or if you're just trying to um, – pay your Netflix bill every month. Like I haven't been keeping track of Netflix, but my guess is they are probably a little bit um, more immune to inflationary pressures because their product is, um, is software essentially. Um, I'm not sure, but my guess is that Netflix um, subscriptions are probably doing okay. Or you could think of software in general as being like this, these things that are, you know, it's, it's easy to create, um, another user of that software. And so it's maybe a product that doesn't have to be um, as immune to inflationary pressures. But, um, you know, what you're talking about with, with ground beef, well, it's hard to create um, synthetic grass-fed ground beef. Like it, it's a very um, specific product. So I understand what you're saying with that. Right, right. Okay, okay. Well, let's try to do some nuts and bolts. Um, where would you like to start? I have kind of, um, you know, this list, uh, food, fuel, transportation, taxes, housing, fun, kids, tuition, vacations, oh, okay. clothes, sports gear. Um, should we just go down the list or what would you like to do? Yeah. Um, I would say if you're just talking about like basic household finances, maybe even before, um, getting into like how to save money, um, at a certain, at a certain point, you know, if, if we're talking to like a young person, you know, even somebody under the age of 50, maybe the first place to start would just be like figuring out how you can level up your, um, the income side of your, Mm. of your uh, income statement. So, um, you might want to look at your, your job or career and and say, how solid is this? (laughs) Is my job or career going to be a victim of, um, inflationary pressures. Um, am I working in, um, you know, am I working at, uh, I don't know, some sort of, um, government job where they're known to not sort of raise, you know, they're, they're raising rates at 2% every year or 4% every year. 
where even if I get these, you know, these pay raises, that's not keeping track with inflation. And I either I need to find a, you know, a different job or a side hustle or a side business. Um, I think that's pretty important too. Um, you want to keep your income increasing as well too, before you even start to think about trying to cut expenses, which is of course is important as well too. Um, but yeah, Tim, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's an excellent thought. I think, um, okay, my, my brain sort of immediately goes to psychology on this. I, I don't mm-hmm. know if that's the right place for it to go, but I, I think, um, l- let's say I've got a good job and I like it, but let's say that they're also giving me a 3% raise next year. But, you know, CPI mm-hmm. is supposedly 8%, but my hamburger's up 45%. And so I'm, I'm getting worried about things. Plus, yeah. I, I remember... You know, the 70s, well, unemployment went up. And if we do the solution, the Paul Volcker solution, which is high interest rates, well, then unemployment is really going to go up because that's kind Mm. of what happened. So looking at side hustles sounds like a good idea. It sounds like maybe I might want to take a personality test like a Myers-Briggs and maybe identify some extra jobs that I could do. Maybe I want to take out a sheet of paper and jot down five or ten things that I would enjoy and and just become a little bit more entrepreneurial on a few things. Um, th- this example may not be great for adults, but but I think it just sort of has a nice general principle. I noticed from my high school kids that one kid would go out and get a job at Subway, and that was wonderful, and that paid about $12 an hour. And then somebody else would go out and become a babysitter and that would pay 16 to 20 dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. So the babysitter was making more. Another kid would start mowing lawns and then this kid was making 30 to 60 dollars an hour. And then mm-hmm. furthermore the babysitter and the lawnmower were being entrepreneurial. They were setting their own hours. If they and a customer didn't really get along, they parted ways rather sweetly. So as a result, the entrepreneurs were picking who they were working with. They were selecting their own hours. They were doing what they wanted to do. The The other kid working at Subway was working very hard, but, you know, sometimes maybe the boss wasn't the nicest. Maybe some of the customers were a little bit rude. Maybe they couldn't set their own hours. I, I was just rather amazed, ultimately, that the entrepreneurial situation paid more, but then the lifestyle aspects of it seemed to be more pleasant. And then when I would speak with adults, I would find very similar things. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. Tim, I always love how you use your little, uh, your, your students as little guinea pigs too, where you can sort of see what they're doing. I, I sort of do that too with my, my, uh, my clients. I run a financial planning firm and a lot of my clients are like, um, you know, young families in their thirties and forties. That's pretty typical. And, and what I'm finding in Kansas city is, um, you know, this is probably just not exactly directly related to inflation, but a lot of people just don't know what their value is in the marketplace. You know, you, you you start working a job and maybe you get comfortable and you just don't even realize that you might have more value in the marketplace. And so like I'm seeing, and maybe, maybe some of this was sort of bull market um, wages, but you know, you, you could you could be in software sales here in Kansas City, which in the mid you know in the Midwest the cost of living is still pretty fairly low, um, but there's you know 
plenty of young men and women with four-year college degrees that can earn a you know very nice six-figure income in sales, uh, software sales. Um, and I think a lot of people just don't even realize that that's possible. You know, earning a high six-figure income, which is a four-year college degree selling software. Um, the other one that I've seen is is these coding jobs are in high demand. So um, another thing, like you, you know, in some cases, you don't, you don't even need a four-year college degree. You can just teach yourself how to code. And that's another one. Um, I, I've got a few clients that here in Kansas City, and they make a very nice high six-figure income, which is a, a very nice living. And so how that relates to inflation is if you're earning a nice income like that, the percentage of your income that necessarily has to go to housing or necessarily has to go to food compared to like maybe a lower income family, it doesn't have to be as high. Right. And so um, you're, you're, you know, at, at a certain level of income, there's just a certain percentage that has to go towards food and has to go towards housing. And there's not a whole lot you can do beyond that. And so um, if inflation, if, if we're going to have inflationary pressures on both food and housing, um, you know, sometimes the answer might just be, you know, maybe it's time to reevaluate uh, your income. And if there's anything you can do to improve upon that, um, whether it be a career change or, you know, some of the things that you're suggesting, Tim. Yeah. Well, and I, I love those suggestions that you're making. And and I I think people, let's say they start to engage in some sort of a side hustle and possibly hope mm-hmm. that this will take over and become their main gig. I, I think just a little bit of patience might be in order that, hey, I'm going to start this thing. And um, I, I don't expect it to match my regular income for, say, the first six months or nine months. You know, things might take like a year or two uh, to really ramp up. But as long as you see some steady progress, you could probably feel pretty good about it. So I Oh, I, sure. I, I, yeah. Yeah, just, yeah, sure. Sure. Like some of this is like, uh, you know, we're talking about like your life. So it's not necessarily um, the the solution to like conquer inflation this year unnecessary per se but you know um but it's sort of about you know how, how do you how do you want to earn a living like how how, how are you going to achieve, achieve you know your financial goals and so um i think that's that's a good suggestion yeah okay um shall we try to do some of the nuts and bolts on expenses let's get into it let's do it okay um thoughts on food ways people could save money on food Okay. Um, I, I just read an article in the wall street journal, um, over the weekend and, uh, it was just, you know, I don't know how they were, they find, they always find like the perfect family for these sort of scenarios, but it was one of these like highly, extremely frugal families. Um, they had a bunch of kids, they, they live on a farm and they like grow a lot of their own vegetables and things like that. And anyway, the article described a situation where this family of seven or whatever it was, actually has a lower grocery budget this year than they did last last year. And it's just because they're just doing all the hacks. Like they're growing a lot of their own food. They're buying food from, um, Oh, like, uh, those the stores that sell directly to restaurants. I don't remember what those are called. Um, they'll, they'll go and they'll try to find like the damaged packaging and stuff like that at the grocery store where you can, you can find things that are, you know, maybe slightly damaged, but they're on sale. And so they're, they're just doing all the hacks. And there's blogs out there that will like tell you how to do this sort of thing. And, um, and so I think you could do that. I guess in my mind, um, you know, this sort of just goes back to like just being serious about living on a budget. Cause I think 
what a lot of people do, at least in my, in my perspective is they're just sort of, they just go to the grocery store or they're, you know, they're going to go out to restaurants a few nights a week and it's just not tied to any sort of plan at all. It's not, it's like the, it's like the federal reserve. It's not tethered to any reality. It's just, you're just spending money. And when you're hungry, you go out and, and you find food. And, um, I would say just for starters, like there is another way, Tim. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, you I, could, I you could do uh, some, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, for starters, like I think a lot of people would just benefit from literally just, you know, whether it's a pen and paper, just creating a, a budget for the month or, you know, downloading one of the apps like YNAB um, or doing like an Excel spreadsheet and literally just creating a plan for what you're going to do on a month or weekly, weekly basis, and then just setting out to execute that plan or try to get in the ballpark of it. And so I think um, for a lot of people, like that's actually a pretty good start because, you know, a lot of people don't do that. They, they do what I was saying earlier, where their sort of spending is not tethered to anything in reality at all. And they just sort of hope it comes close. They do the thing, Tim, where it's like bank balance, balance budgeting, where it's like, if the money is in my checking account, I suppose I can just go to the, go to the restaurant and, you know, pay for a meal there. Well, I, I, I totally see your point. hundred percent agree in terms of budgeting, like why that's absolutely necessary. And I, I think you made a good suggestion in terms of just go online and look at some templates of other people's budgets. If you've never done one before mm-hmm. in your life, there's a lot of simple budgets that are one page long. You know, income is like a short column. Expenses are a longer column. Um, you have to include some fun in your budget. Otherwise, it will be too strict and you won't want to do it anymore. My, my feeling is, is that because inflation is pinching people so very, very hard, um, people might sort of like live in this fantasy land for a little while where I can keep going out to restaurants at the same pace, etc. But Gosh, you know, you fill up with gas on the way to the restaurant. You find out that everything in the restaurant is 20% more. There's going to be sticker shock and people are going to look for alternatives. So I I think at first people will be in that mind frame that you mentioned that, you know, hey, what the heck? I've worked hard. I want to go out to eat. But the problem is the next month I can't afford to do that anymore. You know, it's just it just goes down. So I, I think your suggestions, hey, get an get an app for budgeting, look at templates, maybe work it out with a friend. These these are good ideas. These are very good ideas. I think people Yeah, people people always like I'm always encouraged by hearing people's stories too. So like I mentioned the the family in the Wall Street Journal that was like, you know, growing their own vegetables and buying damaged uh damaged uh packaging. Um, I, I don't know. I, I it's e- easy to get discouraged about inflation and just sort of think that this thing has be- befallen us, and you know, we're it's sort of there's no hope, and we're screwed, and our generation is screwed. But people get creative, and and people like they they figure out ways to like have fun with it. And so I expect that like Americans will have some ingenuity with this. Um, you know, I guess what we did in our, in our household. Um, we're not super crazy. I've, I've had times in my life where I have been extremely frugal and I've done sort of radical things, but as it stands today, we're, we're not so radical, practically speaking. Um, one of the things that we do is I like to buy, um, uh, I like to buy meat when it's not, when it's on sale. So we do have like a deep freeze and we just sort of load up when, 
the grocery store will have like meat meat sales. And I think that's a good way to get like cheap protein and not to fill yourself up with like um, a bunch of, um, you know, unnecessary proteins. And so that's one of the things that we do. And um, I've thought about buying the cow, Tim, and uh, but I haven't done it yet. And I think the one time that I was trying to line one up, like they ran out or something like that. But I think at some point I will be the guy that buys the cow or at least the half a cow. Oh, I, I've done that. I bought a quarter. You've done that. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've done it. My best friend's a cattle farmer up in Iowa. Cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. So absolutely. Okay. I've done that. Okay. Fun fact in world war two, I think 40% of the food grown in America was grown in people's gardens. Hmm. Well, and that was a holdover from the idea from world war one where they encouraged people to grow their own food. And, you know, Mm. that's because there was suggested rationing going on. People were suggesting wheatless Wednesdays and meatless Mondays and sugar-free Sundays. This was a World War I thing, and so then a lot of that got repeated in World War II. Now, those were only suggestions. But when they did the wage and price controls in World War II, it was actually kind of hard to get some staples you know, things like sugar and things mm. like that that people want. Um, so I think your point about stocking up, like stock up like a hoarder, that makes sense to me. What, what do you think? I, I think I think like just fill up the pantry, just like overload the thing because if groceries are only going to get more expensive, you, you might as well just stock up now. That's kind of my feeling. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Um, you know, there was like the whole minimalist movement where um, maybe this is sort of passe now. This Maybe this is a few years ago, but this whole minimalist movement where, you know, it's like all I need is like my laptop and my and my credit card. And like I'm sort of like cool guy that can just remote, work remotely anywhere in the world. And um, there's something to that, obviously. But I think the trade-off is like for for normal families – like having real goods is pretty useful um, when you can acquire certain things when they're inexpensive and you're not forced to, um, you know, buy something when you need it and it's and it's at the worst price possible. So, like I always think, you know, inevitably, like when I go on vacation or something like that, I always will like end up buying I don't know a bottle of aspirin or something like four times the price of what I would have spent um, at home. And it, it always drives me nuts, but I, but I do it anyway. And I'm always like sort of happy to do it, but it always sort of drives me crazy. <laughs> and that's an example of what can happen when you're just sort of, um, you're not planning ahead and you're not sort of like strategically trying to acquire the things that you're going to need over the course of your, of, of time. And so, um, yeah, I mentioned, I mentioned the meat, uh, there's probably a bunch of other things that we could think about what that, what, what that could be as well too, but just as a general principle, I agree. Yeah. If there's something that you think your family is going to need, pay attention. And if you can find it at a good price, buy it now rather than at a time when, um, you know, that price, it might be going through the roof. Yes. Yes. Well, I've, I've heard the four major expenses in life are housing, transportation, food, and taxes. I, I would actually kind of like to see what we can do with all of those. I feel like I can come up with something for about three out of four. And on the fourth one, I'm just going to be stuck. Um, On taxes, the two most obvious things to me seem to be get a 401k going. 
um, if at all possible, max that thing out. Um, yeah. And you can save a boatload of taxes immediately with that. And then for the long term, of course, a Roth IRA, because however much your money grows, it does not get taxed on the other end. And, you know, within your IRA, you could make stock trades, you could make like mutual fund trades. If you, if you don't like what you're in, you could get out of that thing and put your money in a different thing. Those are my two immediate ideas on taxes. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, yeah, it is discouraging when when you think about like your lifetime earnings. Um, let's say you make a few million dollars over the course of a lifetime. Uh, it, it's very possible that several hundred thousand dollars of that are going to go to pay towards taxes, which is very discouraging. So, yeah, you mentioned that the, the uh, you know retirement accounts is probably the easiest one that all of us could take advantage of, and you really could shepherd yourself from a lot of taxes um, by, by taking advantage of them. I guess the other one that comes to mind to me is there are a lot of incentives for um, both business owners and real estate owners in the tax code. So um, if you if you own a small business, everything's a write-off and that's very helpful. Um, if you uh, if you own a home, you can you can write off the the mortgage interest. So um, that's pretty helpful too. And, um, um, you know, most people at some point in their life might have the, the, the opportunity to do both of those. So, um, yeah, those are, are two, are two good ones. And, um, I, uh, but yeah, I agree. It, it's a problem. There's only so much you can do if you want to live in the United States, um, which I do. And it's sort of the trade off that, that we have to sort of deal with. Yes. But, I think we gave people at least four suggestions, and I noticed a common theme from earlier that entrepreneurs oftentimes pay less taxes than employees. Right. So, um, oh yeah. Let's let's move on to the one that I, for me, it's kind of impossible to figure out how to save money, and this is transportation. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so a couple simple things. Um, I know in. Um, in my household, we, um, uh, we're a two car household. So like, um, you know, I'm sort of in the mode of, um, you know, I'm in dad mode right now. So I'm thinking about things like minivans because <laughs> we've got two kids and, and one on the way. And so, yeah, I guess we've thought about our household is like, okay, um, we want to have, <coughs> um, uh, a good car and we want to have a crappy car. <laughs> That's sort of like how we've handled this two car household thing. Of course you, you could always, you could always uh, try to go with one car. Um, it, if anyone's listening to this podcast that doesn't live in Kansas city, um, it's, it's hard to do that in Kansas city because Kansas city is famously uh, wide and expansive. It's got like the most highways per capita of any Metro in the country. Um, so we have two cars, but I know a lot of people try to make it work with one car and maybe that's more possible now that people are working from home more than than ever before. But anyway, our our sort of um, middle ground is we've got one car that's you know pretty nice, and then we have another car that's um, sort of junky, and that's how we've handled that. Um, but I would say, um, I would say in general, I, I like I still like the idea of having a paid off car. Um, with a paid off car here in the state of Missouri. Um, 
especially if it's an older car, that the taxes are lower. So we have these things called property taxes here where you have to pay taxes on your car on an annualized basis. And the nicer your car is, Tim, the more expensive your car is that the taxes are higher. Yes. It drives me nuts. And so you're actually incentivized to have a, the, the proverbial crappy car. Um, and so that's, that's one thing you can do. Um, as uh, if the car is more expensive as well too, the, the insurance is going to be higher. It's going to cost more to insure that vehicle as well too. And if it's paid off, um, you can drop the comprehensive coverage. And uh, a rule of thumb there is, uh, there's some debate about this, but but one rule of thumb that I sub- subscribe to is that if the value of the vehicle is under $10,000, it probably makes sense to just drop the comprehensive and um, and you just keep the liability. So those are some things you can do with paid off cars. Um, I don't know what you think. In, in my mind, uh, this has always been, sort of anti-personal finance anyway, but I think even ever, even more than ever now, it makes less sense to lease a vehicle today with interest rates being higher than what they were a year ago. And with inflation on the rise, it seems to me that if you're going to try to do that every couple, if you're going to try to lease every few years, the, the cost of those vehicles are going to keep going up and the interest rates are less um, amenable to um uh, leasing terms than they would have been a few years back. I, I'm not a car expert, but in just, you know, me thinking of it uh, very simply, it seems like that's even a worse idea than what it used to be. Um, so anyway, that's, that's, that's what I would say if you're a car driving family, which most people are, um, <clears throat> and you're burning gas, those are the things that we do in our household. I, I like all that. I think those are good suggestions. And I'm just going to toss out a few other ideas in random order, some small, some big. One is, is that there was a car that I had for 284,000 miles. And oh, I was, nice. And I was really proud of that. And the thing is, I just did the regularly scheduled maintenance. My, my whole yeah. feeling was, is uh, if I can keep putting off buying a newer car um, year after year, then that's what I'm going to want to do. So just sort of being super diligent about regularly scheduled maintenance. Uh, it just seemed to be like a very, very important thing to do. You know, something else that I'm honestly thinking about. Tim, hey, hang on. What, what kind of car though? What was it? Oh, it was a Ford Focus. That was, an- oh, cool. that was another thing. I remember when I bought it, looking up at the time, what cars last the longest and have the least repairs? Right. That's a good question for a search engine. What cars last the longest and have the least repairs? And about three different things popped up at the time, and I bought one of those. And it was mm-hmm. absolutely true. I, I personally put 262,000 miles on this thing, uh, drove it for 13 years, uh, didn't really have to put too much into it in terms of repairs. Now, that's being pretty frugal, I guess, but, you know, people might have to do that. They might have to do more than that. I'm, I'm thinking randomly here, I wonder how much a motorcycle is how long does it last what type of mileage does it get per gallon um just other ways to maybe save money on transportation a little bit i I, yeah i saw that you were you're you're thinking about that and uh, i've never had a motorcycle so i don't know what the answer is but yeah i would imagine um i would imagine it burns less gas so that that could be an interesting thing as well too but um i i wanted to um just touch on something you just brought up because it just made me think of something that I think is really important is even with regards to food, um, 
you know, the, the temptation could be, well, with inflation on the rise, I'm not going to buy good food anymore because, you know, now I'm going to eat like, um, I'm going to eat worse because it's going to at least stay within my budget. And I would say, I would say caution people to not try to do that because the, the bigger concern is that if you're not taking care of your body, you're going to have like medical needs down the road, which is even an even worse problem, you know, not, not only as a lifestyle choice, but, but as, um, but just financially speaking, um, you know, healthcare is extremely expensive and it relates exactly to what you're saying with regards to the, to the vehicle too. Um, the temptation could be, well, um, my, my paycheck doesn't go as far as it used to. So I'm going to just get the, ch- the, the cheapest car payment I could possibly find. Um, but the problem with that is you might, you know, you know, you might be buying like some, uh, some sort of vehicle that's just going to break down. And, um, if you're buying, you know, I always say the Toyota or the Honda, cause I'm not a car guy, so I don't know anything. So I just say when in doubt buy a Toyota or a Honda, but yeah, maybe it's a Ford focus. Maybe it's a Ford F-150. Um, I don't know, but, but, but if you're buying something that's dependable, even if, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's like the lowest payment today, you're, you're setting yourself up for maybe many years of, um, a, a sustainable vehicle. So I think that's important. I do too. I, I'm a, a lifelong fitness uh, fan. So mm-hmm. anything that a person can do to maintain their body, maintain their car, uh, this, these type of long-term investments I think are good. Um, okay. So the last one I think of the big four is housing. What are your thoughts on helping people save money on housing? I think this is a tough one because, um, I think there's, a um, there's a lot of emotion that comes with housing. Um, especially if it's like, uh, you know, in, in my orbit, if it's like a couple that's trying to find like their, the home for their family or something like that. And, and in my mind, like I'm, I sort of have like this stoic view of like how to think about money and I don't tend to get super emotional one way or the other about it. And, uh, like when I bought a house, I was a bachelor. And so the decision for me was like very quick, quick. Like when I saw, when I saw the house I wanted, I immediately acted on it and there was like very little emotion involved. But I think what can happen is, is you start to think about what, um, you know, what school are we near? What church are we near? What friends live near us? Um, you start to think about how much you love the backyard and, um, you know, what sort of decorating you can do to the house. And I think it's very easy to get emotionally tied up in these houses. And so people don't often think about their home as like a, a financial decision, but that actually is where you should start. You should start to figure out like, Hey, what is my, like if I'm buying a house, for example, not instead of renting, what is my budget? What is prudent? And, and then you stick with that, right? Cause it's, it's easy to get emotionally tied up in something. And then especially in this market that we're in right now here in 2022, especially last year too, um, you, you might try to stretch that as far as you possibly can. And I'm not saying that that can't work out. Like, like with inflation, maybe you find that that's going to work out, but I think it's, it can be risky. And so I would rather just see, I would rather err on the side of conservatism. And I always tell people like, ideally, if you're spending less than 20% of your gross income on your, on your mortgage and interest payment, that's pretty good. Um, and so that's sort of the, the guardrails that I, that I like to use, um, that 20% number. Um, 
but a lot of people try to stretch it farther, especially when the emotions get involved too. And so, um, I would say if you, if you're, if you're house shopping and, and, and here in Kansas city, like I think it's, it's the market's pretty crazy, but it's still maybe more, um, agreeable than other large markets here in the United States. Um, actually have a budget and, and, and the budget shouldn't just be what the bank will lend. That's probably not, not, not prudent. Um, and then just, ch- you know, watch your emotions because, because um, when people are outbidding each other and they're, and they're coming with cash and they're, um, uh, they're going to, they're jumping through all the hoops to like find that house. Um, <clears throat> the answer just could, might just be lower your time preference and rent for six more months or wait, wait it out for a few more years and find the right opportunity. And so I guess this, it maybe isn't what you're asking Tim, because some of this is just, you know, normal advice anyway, but I still think it applies to an inflationary environment, but maybe just more so than what it used to. Well, one thing about normal advice is sometimes it's tough for people to hear, but the thing is whenever people are looking for, I don't know, the easy or the hack or, how do I get around the system? Oftentimes there is no getting around the system. You know, you could take steroids to muscle yeah. up, but then you can damage your organs and lose your hair. You know, so there's just so many problems with, I guess, trying to get around basic reality. Um, so I, I've done this housing exercise where we'd look at about five different scenarios. One was 15 year mortgage. Another one was 30 year mortgage. One was rent with friends. One was rent by yourself. And then the last one was be a landlord, rent to other people. Mm. And um, monetarily, the one that came out the best was be a landlord, rent to other people, because it's entirely possible that they'll pay for everything. They'll pay for the mortgage. They'll pay for the interest. They'll pay for the uh, taxes. They'll they'll pay for like the termite inspections, the whole schmear there's a chance that your renters will pay for all of it. Now, some people don't want to do that. So if you look at the 15 versus the 30-year mortgage, um, we kind of found if you were looking at a 5% interest rate, a 15-year mortgage for every $100,000 you borrow, you pay something like $43,000 in interest, and you pay more than double that for a 30-year mortgage. It mm-hmm. literally goes from like $43,000 to $93,000. So, hey, and that's for the same house. I didn't mean to like blizzard everybody with just a slew of numbers, but same house, 15-year time frame versus 30-year time frame, you pay way more than double in terms of the interest. Um, The last two options, rent by yourself or rent with friends. Oftentimes when people are in that renting situation, if you can pull it off renting with friends, hey, maybe you have access to a whole house. And you actually pay maybe half as much rent as an apartment building, but you have a lot more space. And the walls don't have to be beige. You could probably paint the walls any color you like. And if you want to get a pet, you could probably get a pet. And if you want to plant a garden, you probably have a lawn. Um, Just kind of tossing a few ideas out there at people. It seemed to me like the best three scenarios were landlord, 15-year mortgage, and rent with friends. But I think every situation is somewhat different, and I would love to have your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. That's helpful, um, and I like those creative ideas. Yeah, when I, when I was single, um, I 
I rented my, the rooms, the empty rooms out in my house to friends. And that was like a way for them to essentially pay the mortgage for me. So I, I love those house hacking ideas. Um, I have a client who him and his wife live on one side of the duplex that they own and they rent out the other, other side of the duplex. And so I've always thought that was a, an interesting way of doing it too. Yeah. I just, Tim, I always think that the, um, you should let the micro economics dic- dictate the decision as opposed to the macroeconomics. And what I mean by that is if you're, if you've come up with your budget and it's just not working out, um, if you're letting the macroeconomics dictate what you're going to do, you might, you might jump to something and say, well, we just got to, we got to force ourselves into a property that we know we really can't afford, but we have to, because if we don't do it now, we'll never be able to find a house. And I think, I think, you know, if you're letting the microeconomics dictate it, you should just, you should say, Hey, you know what? Maybe we just need to like go to a different market. Maybe we need to move somewhere else. Um, maybe we need to move next to mom and dad. And instead of paying that uh, money for daycare, we can use that extra, that extra money, money to actually buy the house and literally be able to afford it. Or maybe in Tim's case, maybe we can buy the house, but we can only do it if we rent out the basement to uh, some tenants or something like that. And so I think that's an example of like you're letting the microeconomics dictate it. And by microeconomics, I, I mean your specific situation as opposed to like reading the newspaper and or reading the, the internet and um, letting that decide what your financial decision should be. That's good. That's really good. I like that. That's, that's a nice way of looking at it. Um, hey, maybe one last question on expenses, unless you can think of more. I, I had a whole bunch of other categories in mind, like fun or kids or vacations or clothes, etc. Is Is there sort of an umbrella rule for some of these, or would you just like to take maybe one of them as an example and use that as an example for people? I mean, I would just say in general, like people have choices. So it, it sort of still goes back to the idea of like, um, you're, you're not a victim. And so you just might have to make harder choices than what, than what would have been the case, um, you know, uh, potentially a few years back. And so, uh, but yeah, let's, Let's jump into it. Which which one do you want to talk about? Um, gosh, let's see. You have kids, and I think that would be a very practical topic for a lot of people. Um, okay. How, how do we save money with kids? And still, what do you mean? Well, you know, um, I guess some people spend a fortune on their five-year-old, and other people spend uh-huh. half as much. How is it that some people are spending half as much, but maybe giving the kid twice as much love? Who really knows? Okay. So like, how do you actually, are you saying, how do you actually save money while having kids because kids are expensive? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. So there's, um, there's a good book that I just read called profit first by Mike McCallowitz and his, his suggestion. So by the way, what he's saying is, uh, you should always take your profit first in a business. And this is the same way of saying, same thing as saying you should always pay yourself first when you get paid. <clears throat> and his suggestion is if, if you're literally feeling completely, um, crunched and, and there's just no wiggle room at all, what he's saying is, well, just, just start at 1%, like just start at literally 1% of what your earnings are and just save that. 
And, and, and it sounds silly, right? Well, it's like, well, of course I can do 1% and I can, I will find a way to come up with 1%. That's not a problem. And so I think that's, and so you do 1% and then you just find a place to cut 1% somewhere in your budget, or you find a, you, you find a, a way to earn that money, but you just start with 1%. And then what's going to happen is of course you can increase it to 3% and 5%. That's going to be able to happen over time. And so, yeah, I, mean, I, I think with kids, um, the, the big ones are uh, <clears throat> like for us, our, our kids are three and one and, and we've got one on the way. And, and so really the, the big ones for us are literally just having them in a hospital. Uh, one of them cost $18,000, Tim. I think the other one was 20. My that's goodness. just literally run of the mill, taking my wife to the hospital. She's there for a couple of days, meals, uh, nurses checking on her, but she's literally just doing the thing with her body that women have been doing for thousands of years. <laughs> right. Like there's really nothing, nothing beyond, like there was nothing fancy, um, about having these children, but it costs like, you know, a, a small fortune for some people. Um, and so what we, what we've always done is we've always um, made sure to make full use of the HSA. And so, when we um, when we have the HSA funded, like that, essentially always covers our deductible, and that's been the biggest expense um, in my short time of, of being a father. <laughs> now, what I will say is, we don't use daycare, um, and so uh, we, uh, like God willing, we, we we've gotten creative, and my wife stays at home, and I I, I watch the kids um, a day or two a week as well too, and. And so that saves us many thousands of dollars a year as well, too. And so, I mean, that's a big one. So if you're if you're in a, situ- a situation where you've got a few kids and they're in daycare, I mean, that can be extremely expensive. And so um, my suggestions there are um, you could take advantage of family. <laughs> um, it's kind of I alluded to this earlier, but, you know, honestly, what some people do and I, I, I totally get it is they literally just move next to their parents or something like that, Tim, and you just have grandma watch the kids. And that could be a solution. Um, Absolutely. But uh, but on the, the other side of the spectrum, um, like here in the state of Missouri, there are like um, tax credits available. So if, if you want, if, if, I mean, if, if, if daycare is the only option and, and you're under a certain income level, there are also tax credits available. So make sure that you know what's out there as well too, in, in terms of like tax credits and uh, uh, different um, subsidies for these things. Um, so there's, there's always a way and, and don't get discouraged. Um, but yeah, it is expensive to send the, send the kids to daycare. Okay. I, I think those are excellent suggestions uh, because I don't have kids. I don't think I'm going to comment on this one. <laughs> um, other, other than um, I'm going to risk doing this, but this is for the later years. This is for the teenage years. Um, I do this exercise with the teenagers that I teach called Cheaper and More Fun, where I have them list off maybe 10 things that they like to do that all cost money. And then I have them brainstorm with their friends. Um, can you think of something that is cheaper and more fun. And the idea basically is to eliminate the need for self-discipline. Because if you're yeah. doing something that's more fun, you don't need any self-discipline to do it. Um, 
And if it's cheaper, well then, hooray, that's kind of what we wanted to do. So the whole premise is we're going to save money and we're going to relax more. We're going to have more adventures. Um, just one minor example might be this. Um, people might go out to the movies and spend, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten bucks on tickets. Maybe they get mm-hmm. popcorn, maybe they get drinks. Pretty soon you're up to somewhere between $15 and $20. Or maybe you throw a very saintly party at your place. Um, maybe there's a little bit of adult supervision to make sure teenagers don't get too out of control. But maybe we rent a movie or we play games. We have about eight people over. People bring their own snacks. You know, maybe your personal expenses in this situation is about $2. Or maybe it's free because you're at home. So that might not be the world's most thrilling example. But I think it just sort of serves the point. Suddenly you're the social hub. You know, instead of having to spend so much money to go see a movie that winds up being kind of mediocre... Instead, we could have a whole bunch of people over, and now you're kind of like creating good things for other people to do. So there's there's so many ways that this is better. Um, and so that's what I have them do. I just have them list off about 10 things that they really enjoy yeah. and then come up with something that's more fun but cheaper. Oh, and, I love that. Yeah, I love that too. I mean, it makes me think of um, probably the biggest the biggest thing I hear oftentimes beyond, um, Hey, I want to retire. Like for example, from clients, right. Like when they tell me their financial goals is really, um, travel, you know, people want to travel. And I think, um, that's pretty indicative of like my, my generate the millennials in general is like, we've sort of gotten hooked on this sort of travel culture. Um, you know, the airline points and flying everywhere and get, getting the Instagram, Instagram pictures. Um, <laughs> so obviously entertainment is pretty important. I like what you said there about, um, there are certain forms of entertainment that literally are just free. Like it's, it's, you know, minimal cost at all. Um, and, uh, I guess I don't know if it's as Insta worthy, <laughs> right. But, uh, but I think that's a good one. Well, I, I'll tell you what, if the party's wild enough, it's probably Insta worthy, but on the, yeah, other yeah, hand, that's if, true. on the other hand, if the party's wild enough, you better not post that on Instagram and let your parents catch you. Yeah. I'm again, I'm still in dad mode. So like our example is, um, and I see some parents that they do spend a lot of money on their children. Um, like they buy a lot of toys or like every kid now they've got the, what do they call it? The tablets. Have you seen this, Tim? No, 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 no. It's just Go like, ahead. it's just like a kid friendly iPad. Okay. It's got like plastic on it and like kids can play games on it. And like these kids are just, uh, they're zombies with these things. Okay. And, and anyway, our kids don't have tablets yet for, for a, because I just don't want my kid to be a zombie, but, but B because I'm a cheapskate and I, I imagine they're, you know, probably a few hundred bucks. I just don't want to spend the money on that. And it's hilarious though. Like when you have a three-year-old and a one-year-old Tim, uh, like my kid, my son Leo right now, he's literally playing with like tethers, like, like bungee cords that I use to like strap things down with Okay. as his toy. Like he's using tethers to like create, like little intricate pulley systems and stuff like that. And I bring that up just to say, like, you, you literally don't need to buy anything for these kids. Um, they, they'll find a way to play with like tethers that you have lying around the house. Um, people are just trying to get rid of toys. Like 
uh, people just give us stuff that they want to get rid of when they want to get rid of Fisher Price plastic stuff. Um, so you really don't have to spend money at all on these children, um, at least for things like this that like aren't super meaningful. Now, now down the road, we want to spend money on education. Um, I want to spend money on things like tutoring, like when I want to give my son uh, piano lessons. Um, these things are really important to me. But like some of the things I think people sort of foolishly spend on, like the, like the tablets, you don't need to. Um, your, your kids are going to be fine. They're going to find plenty of things to do. I love it. I thought of a book title for a book that you should write. And uh, it should be called The Thrifty Anti-Zombie. Oh, nice. I like that. Well, you need to teach me how to write a book because I've never done that. But but you're an old pro. So, I, I, yeah, will, a, I will. I like anytime, that. anytime. I, I think the first step is, is uh, you know, we just make an outline and then you write all the okay. easy parts first. Um, that's uh-huh. what a lot of authors do, because by the time you get to the parts that you didn't think were easy, they loosen up. They become easy. So, you know, especially a financial book, if it has 10 chapters, it would be very easy to, oh, write, yeah. to write it out of order, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah. anytime, I'm happy to help you with that at any time. Uh-huh. So, Interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, hey, um, I think maybe my last major topic is going to be investments. Um, what are your suggestions in terms of investment? Because the thing that I would really love to do would be to get out of the American dollar because if it's mm. going to be this inflationary. So this is making me think, oh, I should be buying metals. I should be buying gold or silver or something else. Uh, perhaps I should be buying Bitcoin. I read a great book called mm. The Bitcoin Standard, although Bitcoin's taken a beating lately. Yeah. Um, in theory, it's the hardest money there is. It's actually harder yeah. than gold. Um, the Bitcoin standard is just a tremendous book. The same author wrote one called the Fiat standard. Yeah. And, uh, that's also excellent. These two books will make you want hard money like gold, silver, other metals, uh, things that can't be inflated like Bitcoin. It it will make you want hard money. Um, and it will make you want to get out of Fiat or printed printable currency. So these are just some of my thoughts, but I, I want you to take it from here. Yeah. Okay, Tim, I've read both, and yeah, I agree. Those are Safety and Moose. Um, is, uh, he, he's, uh, he's converted a lot of people to Bitcoin, and uh, sounds like you as well, too. And maybe we should start with that. I think, um, so Bitcoin, it sort of fixes the problem that I think we started with, where, you know, the classical def- definition of inflation is just increasing the money supply. And, and Bitcoin essentially fixes that po- problem because it's a set of rules as a monetary policy, right? So everyone has heard the thing, I think everyone has at this point, that there's going to be only 21 million Bitcoin. That's right. And and that's actually very significant because that means that there's only a certain level of inflation that, that you could ever have. And, and, the, and the, there is inflation that happens every year with Bitcoin, but it's going down and down every four-year period. And so I think that's at the at the very bottom of like this problem of inflation um, of, you know, it's been around forever, at least not forever, but it's been around for, you know, a good hundred years here in the U.S. now since the creation of the Federal Reserve, at least. Well, Bitcoin fixes that because now it, it essentially becomes a money that the rules, the rules of, of the inflationary policy are already are always known. So I think that's. That's why Bitcoin is really interesting. Um, 
it's uh, you know, like a lot of things that they say that you're supposed to own in an inflationary environment. It's it's a hard money, which means it's hard to create. And so, in the case of old, there only being 21 million, it's extremely hard to create because you, at a certain level, like it's it will be impossible to create any more of it. Um, and so, I think that's why it's very interesting. Now, now some people have have rebutted um, Bitcoin as being an inflation hedge because. When we saw, we started to see higher CPI within the last six months or so, that was right when, when Bitcoin had been selling off during this bear market that we've been seeing. And I mean, I think there's something to that. Like if, if you're just hoping like on the day that you have a high CPI print come in that, that your, um, your Bitcoin is going to go up that day and it's going to be like that sort of short term thinking that's really not what you're going to get with Bitcoin. I think it's uh, what it is. It's more of a long-term aspirational speculation, really, on a potential new money. And, and uh, this could be something that I think will probably play out over the course of my lifetime, um, or maybe maybe in the next five or ten years. But it's really not the th- not the sort of thing that. Um, you know, is going to work on a short-term level as just a pure inflation hedge if it's like, um, hey, I just need it to go up on the day that we have a high inflation rate. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of my nuanced way of looking at it. It's It fixes it, fixes it and that it's, uh, it essentially solves the classical definition of inflation, but it's probably not the sort of thing that you would want to own if it's like, hey, I just need a way to like get through the next six months of an, of an inflationary period. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of how I view it too. I think that if it's an investment, it's a long-term investment. If it's a currency, hey, it's awesome because yeah, the more people who adopt it, the more it can um kind of like be stable in its value, so to speak. Um and then every transaction is is so incredibly verified. It's it's very very hard to cheat people with Bitcoin. I think that's great. The origin story behind it is just fantastic that this engineer, I can't remember his name, um, he basically invented this thing, put it out there for the world, explained what it was, and then he just absolutely disappeared. And so mm-hmm. people can't find him. They can't ask him questions about things. Um, it was just seemingly perfect right from the get-go. And yes, okay, it's kind of taking the beating in its value lately, but I do kind of want to point out when Bitcoin first came out, I think somebody bought a pizza maybe for one Bitcoin or two Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And uh, last time I looked, Bitcoin's peak value was something like $66,000 per Bitcoin. That that was Bitcoin at its height. So so gosh, I hope they like the pizza. You know, if that yeah, was a yeah. two Bitcoin pizza, that was a hundred and thirty-two thousand dollar pizza potentially. Did, did you see the thing too recently? The the St. Louis Fed um, put out those charts of like all these goods priced in Bitcoin over the last several years. Uh, things like eggs and milk and like basic essentials and stuff like that. And, and, and all of the charts just so just showed everything getting cheaper in Bitcoin terms over the last several years. Did you see this, Tim? No, that's terrific, though. It was great. It was almost like a self-owned by the Federal Reserve, sort of <laughs> acknowledging Bitcoin for what it is. Um, but yeah, it's you could call it a long-term speculation. You could call it long-term savings, even because if you're literally just you know hoarding money, like that's 
that's another that's a definition of savings, right? So yes. You don't, you don't think of like um, you don't think of owning something that's so volatile like Bitcoin as being savings, but in a sense it is in that you're just literally hoarding money, um, even though of course it's pretty early stage money, which is why why it's so volatile. But um, but yeah, that's why I think it's 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 uh, pretty interesting here. Um, I did a episode last year on my podcast where I told the story of um, Michael Saylor has this parable of the Argentine rancher is what he calls it. Okay. And Argentina, of course, has had hyperinflation. Um, oh, yes. And so he's telling this parable of like, if you're an Argentine rancher and the money's hyperinflating, well, what do you do? Well, essentially what the rancher is supposed to do, he's supposed to live on a dollar standard. So when you get paid in in pay in Argent is it pesos? Yeah, I think right? it's pesos. Pesos, you immediately convert them to dollars and you hold dollars. Yes. Um, you you only transact in pesos when you need to buy something, and so you just you do the conversion right at the point of sale, um, and then maybe he, uh, maybe you try to um, borrow pesos, right? Because if the money is inflating you would want to borrow that inflationary currency because then over the course of the period of time, like that becomes less and less, it, it, the, the, the fixed rate becomes less and less as the money inflates. And so, so anyway, you could think of that as an example of what you could do with Bitcoin, even what you could do with like a mutual fund or, or a stock or something like that as well too. It, it, it is one of those environments where, where it's sort of perverse but cash is sort of trash and, and, and you have to have like, I think you have to have an emergency fund. I think that's still important, but, but it's, an exa- it's, it's sort of like a ramped up version of what we always talk about in personal finance, where, you know, after you sort of have your, your money in, in us dollar savings, you want to find other places to park your money. And it's, it probably shouldn't be the savings account. It should be things like um, the stock market or Bitcoin, in my opinion. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Because, well, just a simple example, if I would have saved, I don't know, how about $1,000 for gasoline in 2019? Well, three years mm-hmm. later, that $1,000 buys today about one third as much gas. So, I mean, yeah. just, just parking that money in cash, cash is kind of trash. And so it does make you think, hey, you know, can I put the money in another currency, whether that's, you know, European or Japanese or Bitcoin? And it also just makes you think, how soon could I convert this to some kind of a hard asset, like a metal or something that retains value? Like, I guess motorcycles retain value, you know, something that retains value through inflation. These are, are you talking about thoughts. like are you talking about like classic motorcycles or something like that? I, I think just well just okay I I'm going to reveal my ignorance here. I've just heard uh. that motorcycles, your average motorcycle retains value. It's not like oh, cars. Like okay. cars basically go to zero. Uh-huh. My understanding is that a motorcycle will retain value for an incredibly long period of time. Oh, okay. That's okay. I want the, I want the motorcycle that Steve McQueen rode in, uh, the great escape. You remember that one? Yes. Yes. That's what I, I want. Perfect. One of those. That's interesting. Okay. Perfect. Cool. Okay. Is um, there anything else we should say about investments? Yeah. Well, the other thing, the other thing, like, okay. So two things. So, so, it, um, one of the rules of thumb and, and I do subscribe to this is that in an inflationary environment, you want to be a borrower and not and not a lender. Hmm. And um, and what that means is, 
is you probably want to stay away from bonds and you probably actually don't want to pay off the mortgage extra quickly, especially if it's a fixed rate mortgage. Um, and so if you just think about that, like if you, if you are, if you own a bond, for example, and, you, and your bond um, has a 3% coupon, meaning it, it it's going to pay out 3% every year on the par, par value. Well, if inflation is five, eight, 10 plus percent a year, that's a negative returning asset um, in real terms. And, and there's no, there's really no way that over the long run, you're going to earn any more than just a nominal return of 3% on that bond. And so, um, so in that, in that case, that's, that's a very poor investment. And we've, we've actually seen that here in 2022 um, bonds are having like their worst bear market in like 30 years. Hmm. And, um, and I think that's probably indicative of the fact that these are sort of negative returning in real terms right now. But it works vice versa if you are a um, a borrower. So, so like if you have a, a fixed rate mortgage on your home, and you borrowed money at three to four percent, and inflation is eight to ten percent, well, over the course of time, you're actually inflating away that debt. And so, you know, let's let's say your mortgage is a thousand dollars a month. Well. In ten years from now, in five, let's say five to ten years from now, um, that that amount's going to cut in half. I mean, a thousand dollars in five to ten years from now is going to be about half of what it is today in real terms. And so, um, it, it's sort of this perverse environment where it it, it actually does encourage you to not try not try to pay off the mortgage any quicker than what you would have maybe done before, um, even though that does seem like a prudent thing to do. Um, Technically speaking, it, it sort of makes sense to keep those fi- fixed rate debts um, that um, you, you could essentially inflate, uh, inflate away in this inflationary environment. Yes, yes, I, I think that's good advice. I, I will say it just seems like we get pinched in so many other places from inflation that, yes, it's it's probably it's wonderful if you've got a 4% um, loan and inflation, according to the CPI, is like eight to ten. But I guess according to what I'm buying, it's more like forty percent. Sure, that's going to be great. Maybe your debt's going to get inflated away. It just seems like we're getting pinched everywhere else so bad that it's it's hard mm-hmm. for me to be too grateful about that. I guess. And um, just in terms of teaching people to not pay off debts, I guess that kind of bothers me a little bit as well. But it is what it is, and hey, mm-hmm. we have to adapt to the climate. So I, mm-hmm. I, I think your point is excellent. Um, oh yeah, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's uh, necessarily like a, a godly thing per se. I think it's more of like um, it's just sort of the way the game is played, and um, and I think um, you're sort of borrowing the weak currency to buy the hard the hard asset. You know, so in the case of a house, like that's that's a, a version of a hard asset. Um, and so if you're, if you're, you know, if you own a house, uh, even if it's a house that's like sort of falling apart, what we found is these homes, they actually still increased in value every year with inflation, um, which is sort of crazy. Like my house is actually getting worse. And yet the, uh, the, the value of the house is like doubled in the last few years. And so, um, uh, you know, sort of borrowing money to own that asset is sort of makes a lot of sense, technically speaking. So, um, yes. yeah, I agree with you. I think it's, it's not, um, it's sort of why I 
sort of hope for a return to sanity and like a hard money standard, which maybe Bitcoin is that thing. Um, because I, I recognize that there's some sort of insanity to it. Absolutely. Well, Andy, what is there? Well, let me rephrase. I'm sorry. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything I should have asked you about over the course of this episode that I did not? Well, I mean, I guess the old, the last thing is just with regards to um, just stocks in general. I mean, a lot of the listeners are probably they own like uh, mutual funds or index funds. They are in like the U.S. stock market. And I think what I would say about that is um, for, for, to me, like fundamentally, it would make sense that stocks would do okay in an inflationary environment. Um, you know, a lot of these, these publicly traded companies, they have access to the credit markets. So they're able to do this thing where you borrow the weak currency and you go out and invest in something. Um, so a lot of solid businesses have survived through inflationary environments by, by doing this. Um, a lot of these companies have pricing power. So they're able to continue operating through an inflationary environment by just raising their prices and you know generating profits. Um, throughout history, though, it has been a bit of a mixed bag. So like, you know, we mentioned the 1940s, that was a good decade for the stock market. The 1970s was was not a good decade for the stock market. And so sort of famously, um, that decade was like the decade of um, like the value stocks, like the Warren Buffett sort of things that did really well throughout the 1970s. So um, it's possible that we could be in a period like that right now where um, equity markets have been pretty expensive after, uh, you know, a 10 plus year bull run in, in the markets. Um, we're just, you know, we, we had a pretty good decade and now it's just possible that inflation is coming right at a time where equity valuations were, you know, fairly high. And so maybe we're going to be another one of those periods where like value, the value resurgence will happen. Um, you start to see, it could be things like, um, you know, real resources that, start to be the leaders as opposed to like, um, you know, dot com sort of companies or um, software companies. And you've even seen that this year, like energy stocks have had a, a good 2022. And that's probably indicative of the fact that maybe we underinvested in these things over the last decade. And um, it's probably time to sort of reinvest in energy again. Um, and so, yeah, I guess what I would say is generally speaking, um, you know, the, Stocks are probably an, an okay bet during an inflationary environment. And then there's probably a subset of stocks like value that might be worth looking at as well, too. Okay. Andy, I, I think that was excellent. Um, I, I've just really deeply enjoyed this whole conversation. Um, gosh, we covered quite a lot. We covered, I think, maybe kind of the big picture. We also kind of talked about raising income, cutting expenses, how to invest, Um I think we could probably go for about three more hours. Any any last final yeah. ideas? Well, Tim, I I always appreciate the breadth of topics that you want to cover. So <laughs> good on you, man. That's that's a that's a testament to your uh, just your intellectual curiosity, and you're you're always well read. So um, good work, man. This has been fun. This has been a blast. I've I've just really appreciated, and I hope that we can do it again. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Andy. My pleasure.